Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 3 as we continue our study of the words of Jesus' best friend. He writes his biography, and, uh, and this time together with the life of Jesus does much to strengthen us and to encourage us in our faith journey. You may or may not recognize the name or face of Marian Anderson. Now, I'm not, I, I'm not an opera fan but I, if I were playing on Jeopardy and there was an opera category, I would recognize her name. I know she's a diva. She died at the age of 96 back in 1993, and she was being interviewed by somebody. And the question that the interviewer asked her was, what is the greatest moment of your life? And the interviewer expected Marion to respond with something like the words that Toscanini directed toward her when he said that she was the greatest voice of the century. Or maybe she'd refer to the time when she sang for the Roosevelts at the White House. Or the time when she sang for the King and Queen of England. Or the time she was presented the $10,000 book award in her home city of Philadelphia. Or maybe it was a time when she sang in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. before a crowd of 75,000 Um, many of whom were members of Congress and members of the cabinet and even Supreme Court justices. But when she was asked the greatest moment in her life, her response was, the moment I went home and told my mother she didn't have to take in laundry anymore. Now there is a, a great person who kept her feet well grounded. She remembered who she was. She did not let her celebrity go beyond where it should have been, but she stayed, she stayed very well aware of her beginning, that her, what she was able to do was a gift, and she used it well, and she stayed humble through it. You know, when I, when I read about her and her spirit even toward herself, I, it made me think of this person we're looking at today, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a spiritual giant. He was beheaded in his 30s. From the world's standard, he looked like a failure. But Jesus' assessment of John was stated in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verse 28. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born among women, there is no one greater than John. Now, how how would you like Jesus to make that assessment of your life? And wouldn't you want that to be true? that he would say something like that about you. I would. I mean, who else would that? Now, I know I have family members, and I would like my wife to say, among those born of women, uh, there is no one preaches like you. Or among all the sons and daughters, my kids would say, I mean, my kids would say, above all those born of women, there, there are no dads for sons and daughters just like you. Now, I would take issue with them, of course. But we'd all like to think that the people closest to us would have a rather high assessment of us. But to have Jesus' assessment of any of us like this, that would be stellar. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none like, and then you put your name there. 
Well, we get hints as to why Jesus would have that assessment of John in our text. It's John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was, left, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Well, we met John earlier in chapter one of John's gospel, but here he, he's, he's a key person again. And I think in this text, we have four attitudes for life that is pleasing to God. And if these can be developed in our own lives, I think we're on our way to having the kind of assessment spoken of us by the Lord as John had as well. First of all, avoid the trap of jealousy. John's disciples came to him to report that they were losing followers. The Bible says, so they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. As an aside, Jesus himself didn't ever baptize. The next chapter tells us, but in fact, his disciples were the ones who were baptizing. Now we call him John the Baptist, but he wasn't the first Jew to have something to do with dipping people in water. For many years in the Old Testament, the, the Jews had cleansing rites that they followed according to their Jewish law. They had cleansing rites for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. That was very different than what John had introduced. And in fact, what was going to be introduced in Acts chapter 2, the day the church was established, Christian baptism is different than John's baptism. John's baptism, there wasn't the gift of the Holy Spirit given as we receive today when we are when we are baptized in Christ. And Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. So the real full uh, uh, new birth could not be experienced yet. John's was sort of a preparatory baptism. All at the ruins of Qumran, uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there's evidence that the Essenes, a sect of the Jews, uh, regularly immersed themselves in a ritual bath called mikveh. But John called upon everyone to repent and be baptized. And, and we learned that God kept doing that at this place called Enon because it says there was plenty of water there. Let me take a detour just a minute. The Jordan River, I've seen, I've been there at different places along the Jordan River. Some, some places it's very narrow and very shallow. And other places it's very wide and very deep. And so John chose a place where there was plenty of water. It's one of the evidences that when we're baptized, it's not by sprinkling, it's not by pouring, but it is by immersing. That's what, the, that's what the word baptize means. It means to plunge or to dip or to immerse. Uh, and so that's the practice of John. It became the practice of the early church as well, and that's why we do it that way. 
The disciples of John are alarmed at the growing popularity of Jesus and the shrinking numbers following John. So jealousy set in. And any of us are prone to become jealous if we do not guard our hearts and our minds. It comes in a variety of ways and because of different reasons. It happens when someone who gets a promotion at work and you really feel that you are the one who is better deserving. For students, it happens when someone gets named to the cheer squad or the dance team or, or, or an athlete gets more court time or field time. It happens when someone looks better, has more friends, or is more talented, or, or lives by a higher standard of living than you do. It happens in the church when someone seems to be better known or better liked or because their name was left off a recognition list or wasn't publicly appreciated or when a group member leaves one group to go to another group. We all have to guard against jealousy. The truth is we are the creation and Christ is the creator. And why I say this is because as created beings, we are grateful people. Today is a gift of God. What we have is a gift from God. Everything that we own, we don't really own. It came to us as a gift. Our very breath is sustained by God. Now, if we're grateful for that, we can't also at the same time have a jealous heart. They can't reside together. And so a gratitude to God for all that we have and all that he's done is a great instrument that fights against a jealous heart. When John's disciples complained about the growing popularity of Jesus, John said, that's great, it's as it should be. I, I, I have simply received what I've been given from heaven. I'm not the Messiah. Remember, he said that in John 1, three different times over. And he says it here again. Be thankful for the gifts, the positions, the opportunities that God has called you to. Nobody is just like you. And nobody is wired just like you. And God wants to use you in a unique way, different from anybody else. F.B. Meyer was a brilliant preacher in England in the 1800s. He was a prolific writer. He wrote over 75 books. And at the zenith of Meyer's ministry, a new young preacher came to London and started drawing huge crowds. His name was Charles Spurgeon. And I've spoken about him recently. He's the greatest preacher probably of the 1800s. And this popularity grew for years. And Meyer would stand outside his church building and watch all these, all these carriages go by heading to the place where Spurgeon preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, in London to hear Spurgeon. And in his autobiography, F.B. Meyer admits that when Spurgeon first arrived in London, he was filled with envy. He wrote, I took it to the Lord, got down on my knees and on my face before the Lord said, it's not right, this feeling of envy that I have in my heart. So Meyer believed he couldn't be jealous of a preacher if he was praying for him. So he started praying for the success of Spurgeon. He started asking God to give Spurgeon a double portion of his spirit from heaven. He asked God to give Spurgeon a fame that would circle the world 10 times, not just once. And as he continued to pray, the envy just disappeared. Myers said he started celebrating all the successes of Spurgeon as if they were his own. And God blessed Spurgeon's ministry. He died at the age of 57. Meyer went on to be faithful to preach in Great Britain as well as the United States until God called him home at age 82. 
While we're here, I might say, if you don't know yet, Traders Point, our sister congregation, is coming to Plainfield. They've been in the Avon area. They have bought, uh, the, uh, they have uh, list, leased or bought the old Marsh store. They're remodeling it. They plan to be in their Easter of 2022. And I want you to know, I praise God for that. There are 87,000 people within five mile radius of our church building. We are not going to reach all those people. Trader's Point is going to reach all those people. But we need more godly people that are with us because our competition is not Trader's Point. Our competition is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the world. And we want to pray for the success of Trader's Point, that they will make a mark in our ministry area. And we want to continue praying for our success too, um, for the sake of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. So let's rejoice and what God has given given us and rejoice in what God has given others. Second, recognize your role in relation to Jesus. To put it another way, John knew who he was and who he wasn't. The reason John was not jealous of, of the growing popularity of Jesus is because he knew his place. He knew what he was called to do. He was secure in that. Early in his ministry, throngs of people from Judea flocked to see John the Baptist, but he refused to accept their accolades over and over again. He insisted he wasn't the Messiah. He was just a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. The most important relationship any of us will ever have is the relationship we have with our creator through Jesus Christ. And once you recognize that you are in a relationship with him, life starts making sense. It doesn't make sense until he's the Lord of life. For instance, John knew he was the bridegroom. He wasn't just the friend of the bridegroom. Jewish weddings were different than our Western weddings today because in our culture, the focus is on the bride. There's back doors open and every eye is on the bride coming down the aisle. But in Jewish weddings, the groom is the star. And John recognized he was the best man at the wedding, not the groom. And here's the truth. We shouldn't attract from the heavenly groom. None of us should ever be taking any glory away from the groom who has come for us as church. You, you can buy a book through Amazon called uh, Being the Best Man for Dummies. Now, you can spend some money doing that, or you can just learn my advice. It's not about you. That's basically you all have to remember. Uh, anybody has to remember, be a good best man. And some men, best men, aren't that great of best men, for sure. One of the responsibilities of a best man is to offer toasts at the reception. And I, I heard two or three that are horrendous ones. One best man said, finally, John has found somebody with low enough self-esteem to marry him. One best man said, and brother, I'll be there for you at your next wedding when this one doesn't work out. And one best man said, I'm so happy for you and Sarah. And Sarah was the name of the groom's ex-girlfriend. Bad news. We are friends of the groom. And we commit our lives as a living toast to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, because it's about him. And by the way, every one of us, when we're in the body of Christ, we have a role. And if you don't know what that role is, you need to find out. And the role you fill is to, not for the purpose of making you feel better or making you feel involved or raising your self-esteem. 
The reason God has gifted you is so that you can perform a task that is necessary to make the body of Christ better and healthier. And so if you don't know what that is, you pray for that and ask people to help you know what that is. Number three, discover the source of real joy. Discover the source of real joy. We tend to think of John the Baptist, I think. I have before, as I've read some about his life, kind of loveless, joyless, doom and gloom, preacher, prophet. But he spoke about his joy. He writes, uh, it said about him, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. He says, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, John says and is now complete. In Jewish wedding customs, the friends of the bride and groom were stationed along the streets that led to the bride's house. And Jewish young people would make a competition of of somehow um, trying to protect the bride from the bridegroom. The, 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 groom's, the groom would sometimes try to sneak into the bride's house and then steal her away uh, in spite of the presence of the bridesmaids and the, and the groomsmen. It's more like hide the bride than hide and seek. And there might be a little glimpse of that when we read in Matthew 25, the parable of the 10 virgins. You remember they lined the streets and they're waiting and the bridegroom shows up at midnight. It might have been that hint of the game going on. I'm not sure. So John was saying that the thing that gave him true joy was hearing the voice of the groom. Can you just see these guys hiding in the dark? Can you imagine the pranks that must have gone on between the bridesmaids and the, and the groomsmen, the best man involved, trying to somehow, uh, they're watching, they're waiting, they're trying to outdo the other one. And then the bride, the, the, the best man hears the, groomsman, the, the, bride, the bridegroom's voice. And there's all this exhilaration and excitement going on. The celebration is about to begin. Here's the truth. Knowing the Lord is what produces joy. It's knowing Jesus Christ. Now, John knew he came to announce the arrival of the bridegroom. And when he heard the voice of Jesus, joy flooded his soul. And recognizing Jesus in your life and welcoming him produces a kind of joy that you can't get anywhere else. Jesus said in John 15, I have told you these things that in, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. I was so blessed by Luke's sermon a couple of weeks ago when he was preaching about the wedding feast at Cana. And the emphasis was on the joy of Jesus in that setting and all the joy that comes to those who are around him, that, that, that welcome him into their presence. I love that. You know, we need that. The most, you know, the most popular course in the history of Yale University was offered in the fall of 2017. It was Psych 157, the psychology, and the good life. Nearly one-fourth of the Yale undergraduates signed up to take it. Lori Santos was a psychology professor who taught the class, and she said she wanted to teach students how to lead a happier, more satisfying life. And we understand why the course was taught, because a 2013 report by the Yale College Council found, found that more than half the undergraduates sought mental health care from the university professionals while they were enrolled. 
One of Santos' principal lessons at the thing, is that the things the undergraduates most associate with achieving happiness, like high grades or a prestigious internship or a good-paying job, do not increase happiness at all. Now, that's not surprising to us in Christ, right? We, we have discovered that ourselves. She said, our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery and getting a good grade, are totally wrong. Of course they are. But it's interesting to me that God is such a great benefactor. We are all, every person, human being, is creating the image of God, right? Because of that, every one of us has moments of joy. Every human being does. Um, I've had moments of joy. You know, I can think of standing and being exhilarated, standing uh, on the beach, enjoying the ocean, or being in the Rocky Mountains and enjoying those sights. I've been exhilarated watching Les Mis on stage live and the cast coming out and singing One Day More, or listening to the ISO at Hilbert Theater playing Mozart. Um, I've been equally exhilarated at Paul McCartney concert when he sang Live and Let Die, or um, uh, Neil Diamond singing Sweet Caroline, Don't Judge Me, um, or... or, or um, you know, watching uh, Oladipo play at Banker's Life or watching Peyton Manning in person at Lucas Oil, see the position. All those were joyful moments. They're exhilarating moments. God gives us, every human being, those kinds of joy. But we don't depend on those to carry us like to the rest of the world that doesn't know Jesus Christ. That's the difference. We have found a joy that's deeper than all those human experiences found in the presence of Christ and life. I so, I so, I'm so thankful for this joy that passes all kinds of ways to fully communicate with somebody else. You can't fully know it until you're in Christ. Someone has well said, happiness is like a thermometer that measures our emotional temperature. Joy is like a thermostat by which we set our emotional temperature, whatever the circumstances or whatever the atmosphere in life. And number four, allow Jesus to have more say in your life. John said, he must increase and I must become less. I must decrease. John had such a healthy self-image. In light of his grow and the growing popularity, the ministry of the Messiah, John didn't panic and, and wring his hands on what he's going to do. He didn't hold on. He didn't clutch on to who he wanted to be or who he had been. He just simply was able to say, that's God's plan. He has to keep getting bigger, and I must become smaller, and I'm okay with that. You know, in Greek mythology, you'll remember that Narcissus was a handsome god who saw his reflection in the, in the water and fell in love with himself. And in a sense, he, he took the first selfie, you know. And John the Baptist never took a selfie. I mean, he, he wouldn't have been interested in a selfie because his life was all about Jesus. He was the center of the scene of John's life. Both secular and Christian counselors agree that one of the most important factors that leads to a balanced life is to have a healthy self-image. Now, people err on one of two sides. They either diss themselves and say they're nothing and grind themselves down, and, and, and that just destroys the worth that God puts in us. On the other hand, they can 
make themselves appear greater than they really are. And both are extremes that are faulty. The healthiest place to land is squarely in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ forms us and shapes us in the healthiest way because he tells us that we're worth somebody, that we're valuable to him. But in so doing, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't falsely build us up, never does he tear us down. He simply loves us as we are. And that's why there's no greater motto than this one. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. It's a pretty easy motto, isn't it? Six words, anybody can remember it. Say it out loud with me. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Now, is that your desire? No, and this is the weird thing. Um, it, it, I would say it's an ironic thing because we think somehow if I can just focus and making myself humble or decreasing, then I'm going to be better off. And it doesn't work that way. One time, <laughs> one time, uh, Socrates mocked a man for dressing in a way to appear that he was impoverished when he wasn't. And Socrates said to him, I can see your vanity, Aristides, through the holes in your cloak. The, the, the key to this motto is not to somehow find the secret of making ourselves less. The secret is simply being preoccupied with the greatness of Jesus. And the more, the more we care about exalting him and praising him and honoring him and obeying him and loving him and surrendering to him, you know what happens? The byproduct is we automatically become less and less. We decrease as he increases. So there you have four spiritual attitudes that will lead to a great assessment by Jesus of your life and mine. Guard against jealousy. Recognize your role in relationship to Jesus. Discover the source of your joy in Jesus. And make this your motto. Jesus must increase. And I must decrease. I think I've told you this story before, but it worth, it's worth repeating. Arturo Toscanini, I mentioned him in the introduction, was the greatest composer the world has ever known. Well, one of the greatest the world has ever known. And, and once, uh, I mean conductor, I said composer, he's the greatest conductor. And, and once he led the New York Philharmonic Orchestra in a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And Toscanini was this passionate director. And when they played the last note, the audience stood and there was a thunderous applause, standing ovation. And Toscanini was just overwhelmed with emotion. And he turned toward the orchestra and he said, I am nothing. You are nothing. Beethoven is everything. Now we convert that to our life. It's easy to see it, isn't it? I am nothing and you are nothing. But Christ is everything. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, to think that you have even thought of us after our rebellion, our sin, and you have come to us 
in Jesus Christ is an overwhelming reality and we are undone. But Father, we thank you. And we thank you, Father, for this human illustration of one who had his eyes on Jesus and who gained this wonderful and beautiful assessment by the Lord himself. And Father, we want to be those kind of people. I want to be that kind of man. And so I pray on behalf of all of us that we align our lives in such a way that your Holy Spirit is free and welcome to move inside of us, that we can become who you want us to become. And Father, there's nothing that more derives us to that, that goal than when we pause to consider the, cause, the, cro the cross of Christ. And so we do that right now, our Father. We contemplate the suffering that he endured that he laid down his own life, that we might have a life of worth and value, that we might have a future with you, a life so worth living. We thank you, Father, for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy upon us, even this very day. And now we pause to take a little piece of bread and a little bit of juice and to thank you for the blood and the body of Jesus the body broken, the blood poured out, that we may have life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.